Amen. Well, church, if you want to take your Bibles with me as we turn to God's Word, we're going to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. The Gospel of John, chapter 2. And as always, let me encourage you to keep your Bible open as we read and study God's Word together. Uh, we want uh, to be like the Bereans, that we test everything that we hear to make sure that what we're hearing are the words of God, not just the words of man. I wonder what it is that makes you, in particular, feel alive. I wonder how you'd fill in the blank. I'd be happy if... What? Life would be really good if only... You fill in the blank. What it is that makes you feel alive, come alive, is going to vary between people, different people. But the reality is, is that we all share that in common. We, we want our lives to be more than just a mere existence. We want more than just getting by. We are all in our search for satisfaction, for fullness, for joy, even as we were reminded in Psalm 16. We are all intuitively looking for what life can be. But there was a time in history when we didn't have to look for this joy. The Bible records in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve living in God's perfect world without sin. And in Genesis 1 and 2, there was rich, satisfying, intimate relationships between Adam and Eve and fellowship between God and humanity. The work that God gave Adam and Eve to do was fruitful, it was fulfilling, it was untroubled. All of life for Adam and Eve before sin was paradise. It was as the world was supposed to be. But most of us know how the story goes. In Genesis 3, the serpent, Satan, comes along and he spews out the lie that God is holding out on them. That what life could be is not found in the garden under God's rule. That what life could be is found outside of God. And so tragically, they take the bait. They believe the lie. And when they traded in God's rule for self-rule, we see paradise come unraveled. They traded intimacy for shame. They traded fellowship for broken, frustrating relationships. They traded fruitful work for thorns and frustration. Paradise was lost. But even though paradise was lost, the image of God still remains. We are still made in the image of God, even as sinful humanity. And so whether we are aware of it or not, whether we know it or not, Every human being is looking for life. We're looking for what makes us come alive somewhere. Maybe it's in our career, or in our marriage, or in raising kids. It could be in politics, or in our efforts to make this world a better place. We might look for life that comes from the praise of others. 
the praise of others for our athletic ability, our intelligence, our physical beauty, our musical talent, our success in our career. But whatever it is that we're looking for, wherever it is we're looking for, it's like somebody who is drinking salt water, thinking that salt water will satisfy. It looks like water, but every effort to find life outside of God will leave us empty. It will leave us looking for more. It will leave us more and more frustrated. You ever feel that way? Well, thankfully, church, in the Gospel of John, John shows us where we can find life. Not the counterfeit life this world offers, but real, true, full life. He, he makes it very clear at the end of the gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. This is why he wrote these things. It says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Notice what he says. This gospel exists that you might know who Christ is and that, that by believing you might have life, fullness of life in his name. And so as we turn our attention this morning to John chapter 2, John is going to show us how life is found in Jesus Christ. If we're willing to listen. Now chapter 2 breaks into two scenes. Two scenes. The first scene is that of a wedding. The second scene is that of a temple. So our point our first point this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. Jesus provides a feast for the hungry. Point number one, Jesus provides a feast for the hungry. And we're going to see this in verses 1 through 12 of our text. So if you will turn with me to God's word as I read to us from chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the first scene. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons and Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw, some of, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum and his, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. All right, so again, this first scene that we see in chapter 2 is the scene at a wedding. 
Jesus is invited with his disciples and his mother Mary. And as today, weddings uh, are a time, weddings in the first century in Palestine were moments of joyful celebration when friends and family would come together to celebrate the uniting of a man and a woman in marriage. Unlike today, however, a marriage in the first century Palestine would be a celebration that would last not just for part of one day, their celebrations would last for seven days. It was a party. It was a celebration. Back in the day, the groom's family was responsible for feeding all those guests for that seven days of celebration. So that meant that there was a heavy burden for providing enough food and drink for those guests. That's a lot of food. That's a lot of wine for the wedding guests. And in that day, in a shame and honor culture, if you're the groom's family and you invite all these guests and at some point you run out of wine, you run out of food for your guests, not only does it put a damper on the big day for the bride and the groom, but it would be dishonorable for that family. It would be a shame for the family to not provide. Which brings us to verse 3. When the wine ran out... The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So you begin to feel the tension of this first scene. There's trouble brewing. There's trouble for this family. There's, there's trouble for those who are responsible for catering this meal. Mary's concerned too. It might be that Mary was a close friend of the, the groom's family. Or maybe she was responsible for helping out and catering the meal. We're not told why she's so concerned but what she does, we are told, she brings her concern to Jesus, her son. And she asks her son for help. Now, Jesus' response in verse 4 is a little bit startling for us today in the English. And so it calls for an explanation. Look again at verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. All right, so... If one of my boys called their mom woman, they would be in trouble with me. It would, it would be disrespectful, dishonorable in our, our, our language today. But we need to understand that words have different meanings and, and they're used differently depending on the time that it's used, depending on the culture that it's being used within, and depending on the context and how that person's using it. And so we need to understand that in calling Mary, woman, Jesus is not being rude, nor is he lacking affection. He's going to use that same term for Mary when he's hanging on the cross in 19, verse 26. And he's showing his affection for Mary when he provides a home for her with John. So it's not that he's lacking affection or is being rude. In fact, the Greek word that he uses can be translated in English as madam. So he is affectionate towards his mother, but in using the title woman, he's actually also distancing himself from Mary. In calling Mary woman instead of mother, Jesus is making it clear to her that he is operating on God's timetable, not Mary's. This mother-son relationship, however important it was to Jesus, and for that matter, every other human relationship that Jesus had would now come as secondary 
to Jesus' relationship to God his Father. John's Gospel is going to make it very clear that Jesus came to do his Father's will on his Father's timetable. That's what's meant when he talks about my hour. My hour has not yet come. This idea of the hour is going to show up repeatedly in John's gospel. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 17. It's shown up over and over throughout John's gospel. The hour, we'll find out later in John's gospel, points to the time when Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, his glorification. That's what the hour refers to. And so as Jesus is operating according to God's timetable, he realizes the time of his glorification is not yet. And so Mary knew enough about Jesus from when she was pregnant with him as a child, as an infant. Jesus knew that, or Mary knew that Jesus was to receive the throne of David. The angel told her that. And John the Baptist had just testified in chapter 1 to his anointing as the Davidic king. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. This is the beginning of his ministry. And so it's, it's, it's reasonable for Mary to think that maybe this is the time. But if her request to Jesus at this wedding was a, a suggestion to Jesus that he take up the royal mantle now in order to help a friend out of this wedding, his response to her is actually a gentle rebuke. It is a loving correction of his mom. That hour of his glorification would come when his father said it's time, not when she says it's time. So what can we learn from this interaction today for us? How do we apply this? Well, friends, one observation is that if our affection, as followers of Christ, if our affection for another person rivals our affection for God, if our decisions are determined by a desire to please someone, to please a spouse, to please a friend, to please our parents, to please our children. If our decisions are determined by our our, our affections, our values are determined by those people more than they are determined by God and our love for him, well, church, we must repent. That's sin. We love someone best by loving God most. Parents love their kids best by letting God's word, not their children's desires, determine what's best for them, no matter how loud they might get. Idolizing a parent that we love, a friendship, or a spouse, idolizing them may at first Feel loving. Oh, I love you with all my heart. Look how much I care for you. I couldn't live without you. That that seems loving. But we need to be careful here. Affection that turns into worship destroys the relationship. It suffocates it by expecting that person, a created being, to deliver something that only God can deliver on. We love someone best 
by loving God most. We also learn something from Mary's example here. She was in trouble. There was, a, there was no wine at the wedding. So what did she do? She came to Jesus with her need. She was right to do that. So when Jesus gently corrects her, and her response, her response is actually instructed to us. She doesn't quarrel with Jesus. She doesn't get defensive. She trusts him. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to. She doesn't know what he's going to do, but she trusts him. Do whatever he tells you to. Friends, that's, that's really good counsel for us as well as followers of Jesus. Do whatever he tells you to. <laughs> we are to come to God in prayer with our joys, with our sorrows, with our fears, with our burdens, with our needs. Church, there is no issue that's too big that he says, I, I can't handle that one. I don't know what to do with that one. God will never say that. Nor is there any problem that is too small for God to care about. Not even when it comes to providing refreshments at a wedding. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7 to ask, to seek, to knock. And as we ask and seek and knock in prayer, we should do so with the confidence that God knows what is best and when that thing that he gives is best. God is a loving father who always gives good gifts and he always gives it at the right time. And so we should pray with that in mind. Pray, ask, seek, knock about everything and then, like Mary, trust God by doing whatever he tells you to in the Bible. If, if obedience to God requires waiting, trust that his timing is never late. God is never late. God sees the big picture that we miss, and his timetable is perfect. Now, there's a lot more I could say here, just which is with making all these different observations in this narrative. There's a lot more we could say here, but these applications, we need to be careful here, these applications that we're already making are secondary to the text. They are not the main point of the wedding scene. We've not, we've not even got to the main point of the wedding scene. And so in, 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 in order to rightly interpret this scene in God's word, to understand what the text means, we must be careful not to miss the forest for the trees. We've got to step back and keep the big picture of what's going on in mind. Yes, for Jesus to turn water into wine was amazing. It's a miracle. Six jars, we are told, each containing 20 to 30 gallons meant that if, if Jesus filled all these jars, which he did, that that meant that this miracle produced up to 180 gallons of wine. Just imagine a gallon, a gallon of milk, line up 180 of those gallons of the best wine. Jesus does that. And it's not just any old wine. When the master of the feast tastes this wine, he says, Woo, this is the good stuff. Why did, you, why did you wait till now to give it? This is the good stuff. But again, 
That's not the main point. As generous as Jesus is to provide for this wedding, as kind as it was for him to help out the groom's family and to keep them from uh, being shamed, it's more than just him providing wine. Nor was this miracle some cheap parlor trick that Jesus does to impress his friends. In fact, the, the, as you read the narrative, it's pretty clear that the wedding guests have no idea what he just did. It's, it's Mary, it's the servants, and it's the disciples. It's a small group that actually know what Jesus just did. So why does he do this then? Well, the reason is made clear. The reason he turns the water into wine is clear in verse 11. Look at verse 11 again. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, John is going to, all throughout John's gospel, we're going to see Jesus doing amazing things, miracles. But John is going to be careful to call those miracles, not miracles, but signs. And he's intentional about that. Listen, when you drive down the highway, and you're, you're going to see signs. What do those signs do? Those signs point you as the driver to where you're headed. It points you to this town or to this business or to this building. That's his point. Jesus turns the water into wine as a sign. Well, what's the sign about? Well, again, verse 11 makes it clear. He manifests his glory. This is a sign showing these people and us, the reader, this is who I am. And who is he? He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. John is keeping on task as the writer of this gospel. He said in 2031, I write these things to you that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. And that's exactly what he's doing by showing us this miracle at the wedding in Cana. It's a lot of wine, and it's the best of wine. There's ample provision, and it's the best of provision. Now, hearing the Bible talk about wine like this may make some people squirm a little bit. So we need to say a word about that. Wine, like any other good gift of God like sex or food or rest, any good gift that God gives his people, it can be abused. Scripture is crystal clear that the abuse of alcohol in drunkenness is not okay. Drunkenness is a sin. Ephesians 5.18 makes that crystal clear. Having your mind dulled by alcohol, being under the influence of alcohol, is a sin. We should have our wits about us. We should be controlled by the Spirit of God, not wine. And so Christians who use their freedom to drink alcohol, they must use that freedom with caution. They have to practice self-control. And they must, in love, be willing to set aside their freedom to drink alcohol if drinking makes others around them stumble. The other thing to note is that in a fallen world that affects all of who we are, there are going to be some people who are born with an inclination to alcoholism. And those people should abstain from alcohol. 
But in recognizing all the abuses of alcohol and the dangers of alcohol, those things don't erase the fact that in the Bible, wine is often used unashamedly as a symbol for joy, of plenty, of abundance, of rejoicing, of celebration. Psalm 104, verse 15, says that God gave wine, why? To gladden the heart of man. In that sense, Jesus turning water into wine is a sign showing us the joy and the hope that Jesus came to bring his people as the Christ. That's the point of this sign. So at the wedding in Cana, the the host literally ran out of wine. Verse 3, they have no wine. That was the problem. But as a sign, Jesus' miracle sets up a contrast. A contrast between the life, the empty counterfeit life that the world offers us, and the true, abundant, joy-filled life that Jesus came to bring us. As one writer notes, in the Old Testament, the people of God are pictured as married to God. God is the groom, his people are the bride. But the people of God are unfaithful to God in their marriage covenant. So in that sense, the the wine ran out. And all the bride was left with in the Old Testament were six empty water pots. These jars held water for external washings, but they could not provide anything for internal cleansing or for true and lasting joy. Friends, everything in the Old Testament is not an end in itself. Everything you read in the Old Testament is a sign pointing forward to Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he's like, I'm here. I'm the destination. These signs that you've been reading along the way, I'm what they're about. That's the main idea of Jesus' miracle at this wedding. And it may have gone unnoticed by the guests at the wedding, but Jesus' sign, his miracle, is announcing he is the Christ. And as the Christ, he will provide a feast, a satisfying feast for those who are hungry. A feast that goes beyond satisfying the physical hunger of our bodies, but a feast that actually satisfies our deepest longings, the longings of our heart. And and they should have anticipated this. 700 years before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah talked about this. In Isaiah 25, the text that that, that Pastor Josh read to us at the beginning of the service, Isaiah 25 talks about this Christ coming. He says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Oh, that's good news. And it was anticipated. It was prophesied 700 years before Jesus came. And then Jesus shows up 2,000 years ago. He turns water into wine at this wedding in Cana. 
And friends, the point is, is that wedding miracle was a party preview. It was a party preview. A sign of what's to come. Because while we can experience this satisfying relationship with God now, he's promising, us, he's promising his people even something better. Jesus promised to come a second time. He came once for our salvation. He promised to come again a second time to host a feast where every tear is wiped away and death is swallowed up. Imagine that. Death that steals the best of life. Death that, that brings us sorrow. Death that steals away from us the ones that we love. He will come again. Jesus will come again with the trumpet sound and he will swallow up death. Death will be no more. Just as Jesus came to a wedding without wine, he came to a weary world that was without hope. The satisfaction that Jesus offers is available to us today. It's available to us right now because it's a satisfaction that comes from knowing God. Even as Pastor Tony read from Psalm 16, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This satisfaction is found in God. But we walk by faith now, not by sight. So we have to fight for that. But as we fight for faith, we also hold on to a future hope that is announced at this wedding. A future hope that sustains us today in difficult times. For those who are tired and discouraged because of chronic illness. For those who are disappointed by broken relationships and envy and jealousy and misunderstanding and selfishness and racism and division. For those who are brokenhearted because of their own failure. For those who are exhausted from fighting sin, sinful fear, anxiety, anger, lust, or pride. For those who are tempted to give up because they're tired. Jesus gives a hope that says, press on. The wedding feast is just around the corner. You walk by faith now, but on that day you will see, and the fight will be over. The day when sickness and sin and sorrow and death will be no more. Well, that day may feel very far away for us. Especially when life hurts. But church, that hour is closer than we may realize. That the hour of that day is hastening on. In his hymn, Amazing Grace, John Newton looks past the disappointment and sorrows that we know in this life, and he looks to the future, and, and we sing about it in Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Friends, an eternity of joy in God's presence makes the sorrows of this life feel light 
and momentary. John Newton is reminding us that 10,000 years into our time with God in the new heavens and the new earth, we will not run out of things to praise God for. And, and by the way, a billion years from there and a trillion years from there, we will not run out of things to praise God for. We will not in the new heavens and the new earth, we will not look back on our choice to follow God today and re have regret. Those who wait for the Lord will not be put to shame. There, with God and eternity, sorrow will be forgotten because of eternity's joys. Jesus turning water into wine is Jesus' wedding party preview for us of the abundant joy that we will know by being with him and delighting in him and being satisfied in him. And church, that future, that joy is as secure as Christ's tomb is empty. This is not wishful thinking. So Christian, if you are tired, if you are weary, strengthen your weak knees by looking to Jesus this morning, the one who sets a table full of good wine and good food and says, come, be satisfied in me. There is an eternal feast around the corner. That day is hastening on. Press on, church. I can't wait for that day. And having a seat with the people of God at this eternal feast filled with unending joy and fellowship and unhindered fellowship because there is no sin. Having a seat at that table is going to be wonderful, but it's also, church, listen, it's, it's, it's wonderful, but it's also essential for true life. So how is it that we can find an invitation to this table? How can we make sure that we have a seat at this table of this feast that Jesus is setting, at this wedding banquet? Point number two. Point number two. Jesus is the temple for the estranged. Jesus is the temple for the estranged. And we're going to see this in verses 13 through 25 of our text. So, Look down at your Bible again, starting in verse 13, and let me read to us God's word. Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered what is written, that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had, he, he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name 
when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Scene one is the wedding. Scene two is the temple. And we, as we start... As we, as we walk into this temple, we have to keep in mind, we have to remember what it is that the temple symbolizes. Don't, don't miss this. The, the temple, when you hear the temple, think of this. It is the place where God dwells with his people. The temple symbolizes the place where God dwells with his people. Keep that in mind. So in that sense, in the Garden of Eden... The Garden of Eden was the temple, in a sense, before sin. The Garden of Eden was a place where God dwelt with man. But after sin, after Genesis 3, the temple still existed. And God gives specific instructions for building this temple. But the temple, after sin, also symbolizes how unapproachable God is in his holiness. After sin, the temple reminds us how because of our sinfulness, God is unapproachable. The curtain that separated the holy place of God's presence from the worshipers in the temple and the sacrificial system, the slaughtering of the lamb for the atonement, these were constant reminders of God being unapproachable because of his holiness and man's sin. So when does this temple scene take place? Well, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So the Passover was a week-long national celebration uh, sometime in, in March or April. It was one of three national feasts that God commanded his people to travel to Jerusalem for. So at this point, you can imagine thousands, the roads would be filled with thousands of Jews traveling from various distances to come to Jerusalem, to come to where the temple was to worship and to celebrate the Passover. Now, we, we know from, from history and from Scripture that people who traveled long distances often bought the animals that they needed to offer sacrifices at the temple. They would wait to buy those animals until they got to Jerusalem rather than hauling those animals with them on their long journey. And so the changing of money and the buying of animals was not the problem. That was a necessity, and actually, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, God's law allowed for them to do that. The problem wasn't that they were exchanging money or buying animals. The problem was the location. They did it in the temple. And don't forget what the temple was meant for. The temple was for the worship of God. The temple was a place for God the people of God to come and hear God's word read and explained. It was a place for them to pray. It was a place for them to come and to delight in God. But by setting up their shop in the temple, they turned the temple into a circus. Just imagine, if, if somebody came to the temple that day, burdened by the shame and the guilt of their sin, looking for atonement, they likely would not be able to find it because the temple was turned into a circus. And so when Jesus shows up and he finds the temple was not being used as a place for reverence of God and worship of God and, and for atonement for sin, 
When he, when, he, when he comes on the scene and realizes that they had turned it into a religious vending machine that was belittling God and dishonoring God, Jesus says, no more. John, the Baptist, called Jesus the Lamb of God in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, he shows up as the lion. Within moments, Jesus is cracking the whip. You hear that crack of the whip on the ground, causing a stampede of oxen and sheep to leave the temple. And as they rushed out of the temple, you can imagine people scurrying to get out of the way of the animals. There's chaos when Jesus comes to the money changers, he takes their tables and he flips them over. Coins flying in the air, clanking all over on the temple grounds. And by the time that the, the tables came flying from the air onto the ground, crashing onto the ground, all eyes were on Jesus. He'd made a scene. They were shocked. This is not what they expected when they showed up at the temple that day. But Jesus is clear. Take these things away, he says. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He was angry. Righteously angry. But what was Jesus so upset about? Well, again, we don't have to guess. As the disciples looked at Jesus in the temple, perhaps sweat on his brow, still breathing hard from flipping tables over, whip in his hand, God brings Psalm 69 verse 9 to remembrance to one of the disciples. A psalm, by the way, that prophesies about a coming Messiah, a coming Christ. Verse 17 his disciples remembered that it was written, Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me. And they realized Jesus is right now fulfilling this messianic prophecy. He had a zeal for the house of God. But Jesus' zeal, don't make a mistake, Jesus', Jesus zeal is not as a building inspector. It's not as an inspector from the historical society who's passionate about bricks and mortar. No, Jesus' passion for the house of God, the thing that was eating at Jesus, the thing that consumed him, was his love for God. The worship of God, the glory of God, God's name being honored, that's what consumed Jesus. Walks into this temple, turned into a circus, God's name being belittled. Uh-oh, watch out. The tables, the tables that Jesus flipped over represent anything that diminishes our view of God's greatness. Those tables represent anything that competes with our hearts, treasuring God for who he is. The tables are anything that distract or keep people from coming to God in the way that he provides in Christ. And friends, our hearts, we need, to, we need to realize this. This is not just an event that happened 2,000 years ago. Our hearts are in danger of being like the temple court that day. We hear the call to worship on a Sunday like this. And yet, what we're thinking about is the big game we're going to watch later that afternoon the restaurant that we're excited to go to for lunch, 
the business deal we hope to close later that week, the movie we look forward to watching that evening, the book we're excited to read. We set up these little tables that diminish our view of God's greatness, that compete for our hearts treasuring who he is. And it's not just on Sunday that this happens. We battle these temptations all week long. I think one of the questions that this text demands us to ask is, listen, if Jesus, listen, if Jesus showed up at your house this afternoon, are there tables he'd flip over? Tables that you set up. Does your heart desire a seat at a table that Jesus would flip over? And, 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 and we need to ask ourselves this question individually as a Christian. Are there things in my own life as a follower of Jesus that, that I've done that I'm setting up tables like this? But it's a question that we must also ask together as a church family. If Jesus came to First Baptist Church of Marlboro today, are there tables that he'd flip over? Are there ways that we are doing church that would actually prevent people from coming to God through Jesus? The ways that we're living our lives, the way that we're living our lives together, the way that we're, the way that we're loving God or not loving God. Are there tables that we've set up at First Baptist that diminish and belittle the name of God? In Matthew 23, Jesus does not flip over the tables, but he verbally flips over the tables of the religious leaders. Seven times he says in Matthew 23, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. You don't want Jesus saying woe to you. Why does he say woe to them, these religious leaders? Well, because they were concerned about impressing others. They were more concerned about looking good in the eyes of men than what God said about them. They were greedy. They were self-indulgent. They were self-centered. Jesus talks about in Matthew 23, they were outwardly, they were impressive, they were religious, they were looking good. But then Jesus looks at these religious leaders and he calls them whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones. That's nasty. That's the point. It's possible for a church to look put together and religious externally, but at the end of the day, when you look at the lives of those people in that church, they can look no different than the world. We must fight against this. We must pray for God to flip those tables over. Because our distinctness from the world, our saltiness in this world, comes not when we are lukewarm in our love for God, but when we are white hot on fire for God, when we are passionate for his word, when we are committed to each other, when we are faithful to being together each Sunday, when we are doers of his word and not just hearers of the word, then we are salty, the salt of the world. But if we lose our saltiness, remember what Jesus said, there's nothing left for you to do but to be cast out and trampled under the feet of men. We must be distinct. We must be holy. Friends, having Jesus show up to your house, show up to your church, and flip over tables reminds us that Jesus is not okay with just status quo. He's not just okay with, oh, no big deal. He's challenging. He demands all of us, and those, the flipping of the tables in our lives can feel painful, but friends, 
It is God's mercy. By flipping over the tables in this temple, God is opening in the path for people to receive God's mercy. That's what he's doing. Sadly, some people didn't see it that way, though. After Jesus flips the tables over and cleanses the temple, the Jewish leaders make a demand in verse 18. They say in verse 18, what sign do you show for doing these things? And notice, they aren't arguing with what he did. Oh, you shouldn't have done that, Jesus. No, there's no comment about that. In fact, it's likely that they knew that what he did was right. That in their conscience, they knew that setting up this circus in the temple was wrong. So that's not their beef. Their beef with Jesus is an issue of authority. Does he have the authority to do this or not? In other words, their question in verse 18 is coming to Jesus and, they're coming to Jesus and saying, hold on, who do you think you are? God? <laughs> Show us a sign. Do something miraculous to prove your identity. The sad reality is that Jesus, in cleansing the temple, was showing his credentials. Malachi 3, verse 5, talks about the Christ coming to cleanse the temple. That's what he's doing. The problem is, they didn't want that to be true. They didn't want Jesus to be the Christ because of what it meant for them. And so, they were not open to the possibility of Jesus being the Christ. And instead of trusting him, they ask him to dance and do a sign. But friends, God is not, he will not be domesticated by the demands of people saying, do tricks for us to prove yourself to us. And so Jesus answers them in verse 19, you want a sign? All right, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Scratch their heads. They assume that what he's talking about is the bricks and mortar, the temple that was rebuilt by Herod. That took 46 years. And so they ask, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. They didn't get it. Friends, for centuries, the temple in Jerusalem was the center of worship for the people of God. Three times a year, they would come and they would, they would celebrate these feasts. It was the, it was the centralizing location for Worship for the people of God. And so what Jesus says here in chapter 2 is earth-shattering for them. The temple, he's saying, it served its purpose. But now that I have come, it's obsolete. That's shocking. He's undoing centuries of practice. Jesus will soon shut the temple down because he has come to replace the temple. He's saying, my body is now the temple of God. Don't forget what he said in the prologue, chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh, that's Jesus, and he dwelt among us. We talked about how that word dwelt is the, the word for tabernacled. And in Christ, God tabernacled among us. He became the temple. He became the place where God dwells with man. Shut the temple down. And I think we're so used to this as, as Christians, we, we, we take this for granted. But listen, church, Jesus, Jesus is the reason that you and I don't have to travel thousands of miles to go to Jerusalem three times a year for worship. Had Jesus not come, we would be making a pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem. But we don't have to. 
We don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. We don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. We don't have to offer sacrifices anymore. The temple cleansing happened during the Passover of the Jews. And, and, and we, were, we know the Passover was when every family came and they, they sacrificed a lamb to remember God's delivering them from Egypt. They put a, the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And, 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 and the last plague in the Exodus, if they, if they by faith did what God said in putting that lamb, the blood on the door, God's judgment would pass over them. They would be spared. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I've come. What the Passover was about, I'm here. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, his body is the temple. His death on the cross is the place where sin is forgiven and we are received into God's grace and seated at his table. So friends, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, this is significant. You don't have to travel. You don't have to get on a plane this afternoon and travel to Jerusalem to find forgiveness. But you do need to come to Jesus. God, in his word, is calling you and I right now not to come to the temple in Jerusalem, but to come to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, the temple of God where we find reconciliation with God. There is no other way. There is no other way to be reconciled with God. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And you may think, well, this sounds a little over the top. I'm, I'm not, I'm good with God. You know, God and I are good. I'm a good person. I'm not estranged from him. I don't, need, I don't need this. Well, friends, if you think of yourself as a good person this morning, look back at verse 25. Verse 25 says, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus, as fully God, knows what's in our hearts. We can hide things from others. You can hide things from your parents. You can hide things from your boss. You can hide things from your spouse. You can hide things from lots of people. You can even hide things from yourself, convincing yourself that you're not guilty. But there are no secrets with God. He knows what is in us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our intentions. He knows our motives. He knows what we've done in secret. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Friends, that God knows us is not just something to be feared. It is, but it's also something that highlights his love for us. Because this God who knows everything about you and me, including all the dirt, all the sin, all the rebellion, all the spitting in his face, he knows all that and he's still willing to love us. He's still willing to rescue us. He's still willing in Christ to lay down his life for our salvation. That is the love of God. Jesus came first as a lamb to take away our sin, but the temple cleansing indicates that he will come a second time as a lion to judge. And how we experience him on the day of judgment depends on our response to Jesus in this life. The Jewish leaders, they kept Jesus at arm's length. And rather than trusting him, they challenged his authority. They didn't want him to be the Christ because of what it meant for them. But in contrast to their rejection of Jesus, the disciples believed. Verse 22, 
When therefore he, Jesus, was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Friends, on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead as proof that all that he had said about himself and what he came to do was true. The linchpin of Christianity is the resurrection. Jesus staked his claim on his resurrection, and then he did it. God raised him from the dead. The resurrection is proof that the work of redemption, what's necessary for our salvation, is finished. The only thing that's left for us to do is to humble ourselves, to turn from our sin, and to freely receive the gift of Jesus, the forgiveness that is found in him, the reconciliation that is found in Christ. And so, friends, again, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I urge you to look to Christ right now, to trust in him, and be reconciled to God. Let's pray together.